Welcome to the Modern Immortals Podcast. I'm Marco Lamb. And I'm Luke Terry. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the cutting edge of evolutionary practices as they apply to our modern lives. We draw our inspiration from the original biohackers, the Taoist Immortals, who dedicated their lives to manifesting the full potential of mind, body, and spirit. We interview people who inspire us with how they're living their lives and expanding the realm of what's possible in being a human. Come join us on the ride. This podcast is supported by our good friends over at Performance Tea. I've been involved with this project since the beginning. As a chief formulator of their products, my goal is to bring thousands of years of Chinese herbal wisdom to a daily adaptogenic tea that can support people in achieving their full potential. Performance Tea is helping many athletes, hardworking entrepreneurs, and everyday people in uncovering the leading edge of health, performance, and longevity. The teas taste great and come in a concentrated powder that easily mixes with water. These products are the most powerful combination of adaptogenic teas on the market, and we're getting feedback from people drinking the tea that they're achieving levels of athletic performance and cognitive superpowers that they find exceptional. Find Performance Tea at performancetea.com and use the special code IMMORTAL to get 25% off your first order. And we have a really special guest tonight, uh, Dr. Tanisha Dandridge, a acupuncturist from Sacramento. Luke, you want to share a little bit about Tanisha? Tanisha has been in practice for more than 11 years. She studied at uh, Bastyr University, which is one of the most prestigious institutions of natural medicine in the United States. And she practices in Sacramento, California, and is one of the region's only mobile acupuncture providers. And uh, we're here to talk about a whole host of issues and ideas within acupuncture and community health and the current situation that we find ourselves in, both within our profession and as as a society in the United States. And I want to add to that, uh, Tanisha is the founder of blackacupuncturist.com and runs a practice called Everyone's Place, uh, practicing acupuncture in Sacramento. Uh, Welcome, Tanisha. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us tonight. And, you know, one of the first topics I want to talk about just in the context of blackacupuncturist.com is Chinese medicine's roots in the African-American community in the United States. And those roots come from the Black Panthers movement in the 70s. Uh, the Black Panthers set up the first community acupuncture clinics in the United States and really popularized Chinese medicine as a medicine for the people that was cost-effective, efficacious, and one that could really turn medicine on its head in a way of making care affordable for larger parts of the community. That is all true. That is not my phone either. <laughs> <laughs> that is my uh, 103-year-old grandmother uh, Skyping me. And I tried oh, to, that is so cute. Uh, <laughs> she is, uh, only speaks Shanghainese now, so we, we speak in broken English and broken Shanghainese to each other. But we've been, she's never really used computers that much before until recently. But now because of the COVID lockdown, She's basically shut in her room. So I've been trying to talk to her every day if I can. That is so awesome. That is wonderful. Congratulations. Kudos for you, Dose. So, um, 
to answer your question, yes, uh, there is this very um, hidden, untold, not secret story of the Black Panthers and acupuncture. Um, when most Americans think of the Black Panthers, they think of uh, the people in the leather jackets, they think of uh, individuals with assault rifles, they think of uh, civil rights movements, they might even uh, associate it with things like uh, the MOVE movement and a lot of violence, and they are mistakenly oftentimes labeled as terrorists due to uh, Pro, which is a program that our country ran uh, to discredit um, civil rights leaders and other individuals that our country didn't like. So the part of the story that doesn't get told is um, back in the 1970s, about 1972-ish, there was a lot of things that happened all at the same time. So on the East Coast, you have the Black Panthers and Dr. Matilda Shakur, and um, they opened up in the 1970s, actually, the, the Lincoln Drug, the, the Lincoln Detox Center. So the Lincoln Detox Center was a drug program that everybody wanted because there was a huge heroin problem uh, happening, particularly in minority communities and black and brown communities. And there was money earmarked for a drug treatment program, but there wasn't one. And so one day the Panthers in Panther fashion uh, kind of kicked in the door along with like the Young Lords and White Lightning and a bunch of other civil rights groups. They kicked in the door of the nurses station. They threw everybody out. Like I think the, the reports were like, they kind of like took over the hospital in nine minutes and secured it in 15. Like they were like, we are doing this and it's gonna happen. And they started doing drug treatment. But the problem came in that many of the people who were getting the drug treatment were getting methadone maintenance. And methadone was kind of viewed as trading one drug pusher for another drug pusher. Like instead of having a legal drug pusher, you had a legal drug pusher called Big Pharma and they didn't want that. And so they had had a trip to China, and um, this was about the same time, slightly before, slightly after the story of Nixon going over to China and seeing uh, an appendicitis surgery being managed with acupuncture. They ended up over it in China, and they were like, holy crap, like, look at this stuff called acupuncture. This is really cool. And then there was uh, an article that Mitulu had came across, um, and he was familiar with, with acupuncture because of, like, his own kids, like, his one of his kids... Not Tupac, but we all know about Tupac, right? That was actually a kid. But one of his own kids had had an issue. I think they'd had an accident. They had been really hurt and they had been um, serviced with acupuncture and things got better. And so he came across this article. I don't remember who it was, but they were showing that they were doing drug treatment with E-STEM. And they, he was like, we should do this. And so they did, and they learned how to do acupuncture from a guy named Mario Wekshu and his dad out in Canada. And so every weekend for like a year, they had these acupuncture classes and they became fully fledged acupuncturists and they started doing treatment with acupuncture. And what happened was um, the program at Lincoln like really transformed and they went from having a methadone maintenance to they used methadone to step people off of heroin, but then they stepped people off of the methadone and they used the acupuncture and several other modalities to do that. So it wasn't just needles, but there was also uh, a nutrition program, there was support service, social support services, like there were all these things that went into place and the acupuncture was a regular part of that. But the same group also realized that acupuncture wasn't just about drug detox, it was about dealing with the stresses of everyday life and the racial health disparities that existed in communities of color. And that was something that nobody likes to talk about when it comes to the Panthers. We think of them as just being a militant group, but we forget like programs like WIC, 
come from the Panthers, right? They were definitely about nutrition and they were definitely about social services and they had something called free Panther clinics. And so some of the services that were offered at free Panther clinics included acupuncture. So you could, um, you could get dental services, you could get acupuncture, you could get your blood pressure checked, you could get sickle cell testing. The Panthers were the first person, the first people to like really enact widespread sickle cell testing because up until that point, the government was not interested in doing that. And it was like, it's a cheap and easy test. It's just a poke, you do the test and we find out if people have sickle cell. So the Panthers were a huge part of that uh, on the East and West Coast. But at the same time that all this was happening on the East Coast, on the West Coast, you have Dr. Tobert Smalls. And so Dr. Tobert Smalls also went over to China and he was blown away by what he saw being uh, happening in, in, in Asian communities around acupuncture. And he's like, I'm totally learning this. And he did, right? He, he did a lot of self-teaching as well as going back and getting a, a formal education in acupuncture. And then he became the barefoot doctor. He became the people's doctor. So in Oakland on the West Coast, he opened up like many clinics helping to serve underserved and disenfranchised communities so that they could have effective and affordable health care. Because the Panthers, wherever they went, they were definitely about taking care of the people and they were definitely about introducing low cost effective means of being able to take care of these ravaged communities that were being plagued by well, systemic racist policies that made sure that people stayed poor and they didn't have enough. Right. So um, Matula Shakur also went on to found uh, Two First in this country. Um, he formed BANA which was one of the first acupuncture associations in the United States, which was for black acupuncturists. And he also formed the Harlem Institute of Acupuncture, which was one of the very first schools of acupuncture in the United States. And so he trained hundreds of acupuncturists there and people learned how to do this really effective medicine. And so what's, what's happening now, right, talking about like this amorphous series of coincidences, what's happening now is that these stories have been suppressed for so long. The only names that you heard for early acupuncture were like Michael Smith and, um, Miriam Lee, right? We heard these names over and over again, but now people want to hear the stories of Dr. Torbert Smalls. People want to hear the stories of the Black Panthers. People want to hear the stories of Dr. Matula Shakur and how they participated in bringing this medicine and popularizing this medicine uh, in the United States. And their work, their combined work is also kind of the basis for POCA that we have now, right? The People's Organization of Community Acupuncture and where they do low cost sliding scale treatments. They were POCA was able to do one of the things that the Free Panther Clinics could not do, and that was find a balance between cheap and effective treatments uh, for the community versus free treatment. And the free treatments are what really uh, drove the Free Panther Clinics kind of into obliteration because you can't run something for free forever, right? The government obviously never backed anything <laughs> that the Panthers were doing. <laughs> <laughs> they were not interested in that being a part of the narrative. Now, Dr. Tobert Smalls was a little bit different. He was able to go on and found several uh, free low-cost community clinics in the Bay Area that were able to be supported with 501c donations and uh, to keep medicine being free. But he was also an MD, you know, like I said, and not just an acupuncturist. I hope that's a question. That's amazing, Tanisha. What a, what a history and what a lesson. And, you know, I found this, I didn't find out this information until practicing acupuncture for over a decade. I'm curious, when did you find out about this sort of submerged history or this repressed history and how did it impact you when you found out? So the first time I heard about the repressed history, um, I, I wanna say it was Bastier, but I heard it from um, a teacher who was 
incredibly racially insensitive. And I pretty much didn't listen to anything that this man had to say. Was like, he could have told me the sky was blue and I would have to go check for myself. <laughs> <laughs> and um, like, no matter how much I looked at the time, there was nowhere else to find this information. And then the next time that I heard it was, mm, like, I want to say five or six years ago, I went to a polka fest and there was a gentleman there speaking. I think his name was Tyler Fan. Yes, his name was Tyler Fan. And he like told this history of like the Panther involvement. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? How have I never heard about this? And this was even going to an HBCU. Like I went to a historically black college and university, Morgan State, studying electrical engineering. And we are definitely about all things African-American history and across the diaspora. But you never heard about acupuncture. And so from, from that meeting on, um, I, I was ravenous. I was like, where's the rest of this story? Where, where is this information? How come I can't find anything about it? And so I tracked down books and I tracked down articles and I tracked down people who were doing the same thing that I was doing. We were tracking down the stories so that it could no longer be repressed information so that it could be widely shared. And so you're going to start seeing it. Like these movies are going to come out and these writings are going to come out and these books are going to come out and these articles are going to come out. Like all of us have been doing this research for years and years and years and years. And as particularly as Dr. Tobit Smalls is now just recently retired and as Dr. Matula Shakur is facing incredibly poor health conditions as a political prisoner, still uh, he is in prison. Um, the people are making sure that these stories are being told. Wow, powerful. Well, thank you for being a historian and a custodian of these this knowledge now, and these stories. Now, are you mentoring any uh, other Black acupuncturists and sort of, it seems like, I imagine if I came from an African-American community hearing this story and my experiences perhaps with the racial health disparity gap and realizing that medicine can be revolutionary, if I heard this story, this might be a really... Um, enlightening and encouraging about different possibilities. Um, how is your, how, how, how has your telling this story and the platform of black acupuncture sort of impacted those communities? So I started telling the story, I think it was three or four years ago when I wrote blog post, the unusual tales of, of, of acupuncture activism and racism. Um, and I, the story because I was really tired of hearing Michael Smith's name, not because Michael Smith didn't have a part to play, he did. It was that he wasn't the part that was played. There were, you know, people don't even know that he came onto the program at Lincoln simply because uh, Dr. Taft uh, died under some very incredibly suspicious circumstances. So, you know, you can't it cannot legitimately be called an overdose what happened to him. So I wrote this story because it was Black History Month and I don't remember what we were protesting at the time, but I was like, no, well, we need to tell this story. We, you know, we, we have some uh, misinformation in the African American community about what constitutes health and this is not part of it. And so I wrote the story to kind of do a Horton, here's the who, we are here, we are here, we are here <laughs> kind of thing. And um, what's funny is that I couldn't get a lot of people in the African-American community to listen, but everybody in the acupuncture community was like, what? No. And it was like, yeah, really? Like, not Michael Smith, Matula Shakur. These are the names that you should. And um, that story has now been circulating for a number of years. And I guess like any good seed that needs time for germination, 
um, it has definitely grown some roots and some wings. And so in light of the social political climate that we find ourselves in after eight minutes and 46 seconds and what happened to George Floyd, suddenly everyone remembers, it was just like, hey, Tanisha, didn't you used to? And um, my name is, is a little bit of here, there, and everywhere. So Black acupuncturist is um, the love child of myself and several other people. And we have been working to make sure that people of the African diaspora, particularly in the United States, know that there are practitioners who do this medicine because most folks don't know there's such a thing as a black acupuncturist. It seems um, laughable to me, but as I, I almost never see other black acupuncturists whenever I go to continuing education courses, I was certainly the only one that graduated in my class. And there aren't that many of us. We're only like 1.2% of the population of acupuncturists in the United States. So. The question that I got asked over and over again in my practice is, well, where are the other black acupuncturists? And when we ever try to do referrals amongst ourselves to make sure that people who were dealing with racial trauma would not be re-traumatized dealing with individuals who do not have racial literacy under their belt, we couldn't find each other. It was like, I don't know. I don't know where we are. So um, I made a point of making sure that we were findable. And here comes blackacupuncturist.com. And it wasn't even ready um, to be launched. <laughs> mm -hmm. The site is still under construction. Like there, There's supposed to be an organization behind it. There's supposed to be a lot more content. There's supposed to be classes. Like we want to do scholarships. We want to do so many things with the website. But again, the time is now. People want to find us now. People are ready to hear our stories now. People don't want to wait another three to six months for us to finish putting all the little um, dots on the I's and the crosses and the T's. They, they, they need to be able to find us now. And so blackacupuncturist.com is here. And there are, there's a small group of us that are continuing to work behind the scenes to make sure that it doesn't go away the way that Donna did. Um, to make sure that it's here. And you know maybe we'll be the next Harlem Institute of Acupuncture. I love we'll it. see what happens. I uh, so is there a place that people can donate to the cause and sort of Absolutely. Them? If you go to blackacupuncturist.com, there is a, a drop down menu that says get engaged and then you will be able to see where we have a GoFundMe uh, going at this point in time. We are really close to beginning to solidify some things around a 501c status and we will have a fiscal sponsor so that we can take larger uh, tax-based donations from individuals so that we can start working on things like scholarships and CEU classes and meetups for all of us and uh, course development for racial literacy for the rest of the acupuncture community. So that's coming. That sounds fantastic. And sounds I'm excited. Really, really deeply needed by the community as a whole. And it seems like an opportunity for successful acupuncturists away who want to, you know, give to a cause that's really meaningful it seems like a place to really make impact. We, we are excited, we are growing, we, we are pretty close to our goal of $10,000 on GoFundMe. Uh, the last time I looked, I think we were at 6,300. And most of that is for like website development, course development, um, and the, the, the ins and outs of filing legal paperwork and all of those things, just so that it's not constantly coming out of one person's pocket, which is what happened over COVID. Like I sat down over the COVID-19 break while while I wasn't doing anything, and I worked with the web developer to to get this to the get the site to where it is now, and I just looked up was like, holy moly, you have taken a lot of money out of my pocket. We have to spread the love around a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
I, I might be able to support you there. I know some people who are really passionate about uh, Black Lives Matter who want to put their energy and time to good causes. And I think I could find you some additional support and I will make a financial donation. Uh, I'm most Thank interested you. in supporting uh, scholarships to future Black acupuncturists who want to work in communities of color because I, I see the disparity of health healthcare, particularly in a lot of communities. And I have people coming from uh, communities in Denver to see me up in Boulder, and they don't have access to acupuncturists in their neighborhoods. It, it is unfortunate. Um, so uh, we have a um... We have like a town hall that we that we're currently doing every week and this week is student week so uh, if you go on eventbrite and you look up you know black acupuncturists it seems to be the fastest way to find our little eventbrite thing um we have five students that are that that will be on there so that people will know that while we have been cut off from this history we have been cut off from this being a possibility like we've been cut off from even knowing that this was a, a viable form of medicine i remember when when i went to school like everybody here it was like, how are you going to go from engineering to acupuncture? Can't you at least be a nurse? Can't you be something respectable? <laughs> <laughs> and now, <laughs> 11 years later, it's very respectable to, to, to be an acupuncturist. So unfortunately, um, Black and brown communities have been cut off from, the, from our early history and from our knowledge and from the efficacy of acupuncture. So I'm simply, uh, we are simply trying to get the word out that we are here, that we are going, that there is an interest, that there is a need. And so on the website, you will see some of the, the writings and the publications that are there. Like I have a Get Sharp Your Seed proposal that would be one of the first classes that uh, begins to come out for public consumption, where people will simply know that ear seeds are, are an efficacious tool. It's an evidence-based medicine where you can get a sticker and slip it in your ear and that would simply help control the fight, flight and freeze and rest and digest response because part of the issue with racism is the constant racial battle fatigue. It's constantly redlining into fight, flight and freeze, uh, fight, fight and freeze and that sympathetic nervous system. But there's, there's not always an effective way of swinging the body back over into parasympathetic, back over into rest and digest. Um, I told somebody the story of, uh, I went to, uh, I think it was last Friday, I went to Ikea. And in, in the space of the 30-ish minutes that I was in Ikea, I experienced at least three different racist events. And the, the last one was a racist event that I experienced with another random lady in the parking lot. And so the last one for me was there was a guy that was coming in this big old truck and he saw both of us in the crosswalk and he, would, he didn't stop. He sped up and he went past both of us. And there was a lady who was in front of me and she started muttering and mumbling. And I wasn't going to say anything to her. And I said, you know what, sis, I see you. I want you to know that I see you. I want, to know, I want you to know that I know that you're there. I want you to know that you don't have to gaslight yourself into saying that did not just happen. That did happen. That person purposely sped up and nearly hit you and your cart. They did not want to slow down. And I saw the MAGA hat right along with it. Like, I see you, even if he refused to see you. So in a space of 30 minutes, there were all these racist incidents and all the things that happen inside of the body when you experience discrimination, when you're experiencing the elevation of cortisol levels, when you're experiencing the elevation of adrenaline, when you're experiencing the imbalance with your glucocorticoid levels, when you're experiencing the dysfunction on your heart and dysfunction on your kidneys and, 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 
it's hard sometimes just to say, okay, take a deep breath and let it go because you can't. That was real. That happened. Someone gave you this innocuous threat that you can't fight against. So you need something that can biomedically help to shift you back down into the green so that your body can cut itself back on and not be stuck in that panic mode. And ear seeds are a great way to do that, right? Because everybody can't do needles, but everybody can put in a sticker. So, um, one of the first classes that is definitely going to come up is just a way for people to know how to locate the ear anatomy, how to put in ear seeds, where to get ear seeds. I'm in contact with some people to get um, brown people friendly ear seeds because whatever the color of that tape stuff is, it's not <laughs> the color of white people. Like I don't know what that I don't know what that is. The thing is so hideous. Uh, so we some friendly or better looking ear seeds that people aren't going to be like, Ugh, what is that? No, I'm not using that. Right. So that is, that is some of the works that are coming down the pipeline. And that is what those monies are going to go to so that we can get out to the mega churches, which I know nobody is congregating at right now with COVID-19, but so that we can get in place in front of people like Nadine Burke, who is our surgeon general here in uh, California. And she's all about ACEs and childhood, uh, childhood trauma and preventing it, like you can just put a sticker, you can put a sticker on anybody, right? No matter how young or how old they are. And uh, starting from a younger age, you can have this in schools. Kids can do this. This is not, this is not, this is not brain surgery. It's just a, it's just a sticker. So things, things soon come. That's amazing. That's a, that's a, that's a huge, huge bit to digest just there. One thing that stuck out to me just, uh, um, just because it's a new term and a new concept, the, the context is not new to me, but the idea of racial battle fatigue and how that, you know, weighs on people's immune systems, on their cortisol levels, on just their whole biology and the obvious use of auricular therapy to support that. But I, I'm, I'm curious, are there particular protocols that you use in Chinese medicine to treat that? Or is it individualized to each patient? Or with the auricular therapy, is there particular point combinations you use? So for me, it's a concept, right? I've, I've learned enough different styles of acupuncture to know that we don't have to have a hallelujah method, right? Like, Scalp acupuncture isn't necessarily better than ESTEM, isn't necessarily better than 5E, isn't necessarily better than Japanese, isn't necessarily better than 8-channel theory. Like, everything has its place. And if you're really doing signs and symptoms, and the, the thing that you're doing is understanding that this person is no longer calm, they're out of balance, what can I do to bring this person back in to balance with the further understanding from a Chinese medical perspective of this person is traumatized. This person has this long history of trauma, which means that they don't have good kidney gene, right? Or that their kidney gene has been definitely affected moving forward, uh, moving long-term. And so if you're looking at that, it's a matter of understanding that no matter how excess the condition might be, there's always this underlying deficiency that has to be satisfied, that has to be taken care of. In terms of an acute case of just being able to deal with the now and the present, it's, it's, it's bringing the chi back together after being scattered. It's calming down the liver chi stagnation. It's stopping the heart shock that is happening in that particular case. Now, what's the best way to do that? 
you know, it really should be individualized. But are there things that I like to do? Sure. I love to use the chonk, right? But I'm not necessarily going to be teaching people how to activate their own chonks. I love using Ren6. I love using Yintong. I love using good old-fashioned Nada or Shinmen and Zero and any point in the lower concha because we know that that's where the auricular branch of the vagus nerve goes. But does that mean that that's the end-all, that be-all for points? Absolutely not. You can throw kidney points in there. You can you can throw gallbladder points in there. I have found that for a lot of people, um, being able to treat the gallbladder is important because what happens in your mind when you're dealing with racial battle fatigue is actually a bazillion decisions. When you're confronted with this incident, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Uh, did that really just happen? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to go home and deal with this? Am I in danger right now? Are police going to be called? Uh, is this person going to make a scene? Are, are my kids safe? Am I safe? Is my property safe? Like this whole series of decision-making happens in a split second. Can you imagine if you have to deal with this five times a day, 10 times a day, 20 times a day? What if it's a really terrifying situation where someone has become combative and confrontational and then you, you have this worry that happens in your, hand, in your brain. You have this, this tape that is constantly talking, but it's not just the tape that's constantly talking because now you have to continue to ask yourself the questions of what am I gonna do from here? So there's a gallbladder component that comes into it that people forget about. So when I, when I tell people, if you're really treating this thing, you should know your signs and symptoms. You should know your differential diagnosis. You should treat what's in front of you because that trauma appears differently for different people. But there's always an element of deficiency, particularly when you're dealing with adults, because this person has been dealing with this for decades at this point. Wow. I, it's, a, it's a beautiful synthesis between sort of trauma theory and Chinese medicine you've come up, come up with. I have read a lot of books on trauma theory because Chinese medicine wasn't explaining it good enough for me. Like I get trauma, I get PTSD, I get heart shock, but I don't get what's happening in the body. And therefore, what do I have to treat? You know, when, when um, I remember I had this, I had this, this argument with a, with a fellow colleague about PCOS. And this person was telling me that PCOS is best treated with metformin because there's a sugar sensitivity that is self-evident in uh, women who deal with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And if you give them metformin and you control the sugar, then everything gets better. I'm like, okay, well, what you're talking about is a middle jowl and a spleen deficiency, right? When, when you're talking about a sugar sensitivity. But do you understand why that's happening? And if you're talking about the stress response, you end up with a sugar sensitivity simply because the body will flood itself with glucose to be able to prepare for a fight, right? And then you get glucocorticoids that come in that tell you to start eating, <laughs> but you've already been flooded with glucose. And if this is happening too much, that means you start getting an insulin sensitivity because your body either doesn't want to hear shoot out more glucose or it doesn't want to hear pick up more glucose. And so if you, if you kind of get that fight that's happening from a biomedical standpoint, then when you go back and you look at it from a TCM standpoint, it makes way more sense why you have both an excess, this dampness, the sugar sensitivity, this person who's trying to do the diet and trying to do the exercise and it's not working. And that's because there is this underlying deficiency of the body is tired and confused because it's always getting these mixed signals. But you won't get that if you don't understand how stress affects the body. So some of my favorite books include things like the body keeps the score and why zebras don't get ulcers, right? And then like you have like the great courses that talk about stress. And as I sit and I listen to these things, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, 
One of my other favorite books is, is a book that was written by Dr. Joy DeGruy, and it is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And so it not only explains uh, the history of how we got here dealing with African descendants of slaves, but it, but it, helped, it helped me to understand the continued issues with, with societal behavioral patterns and why some things can't be fixed. If you don't look at them from a societal aspect, you can't fix them. So that was the impetus for some of the classes that I, I used to teach. Again, COVID, right, has interrupted everything. I used to teach a class called Slow Down Sunday, and it would be a group of people who would come in, and we would do really easy, basic, soothing acupuncture, usually using the NADA protocol, and then something like four gates, right, like liver four, uh, excuse me, large intestine four, liver three, maybe some stomach 36, a yin tong, nothing too nothing too much, right? Because it was a large group of people. And then they would sit and have their meditation while live music was playing. And then they would get up and have an opportunity to participate in live music while drinking herbal tea. They got a lecture of how you can go home and stimulate these points and why these points are important. And then we did some Tai Chi. It was a two hour thing. But at the end of that, we had a group healing collective where people made friends, they healed together, they, they checked their points, with each other together and they would they would leave that event with all these tools in place that they could do by themselves, that they could do with their family, that they could do with their new friends. And that brought in the social element. And I didn't know how important that was until I took Dr. Joy DeGruy's class. She has a, a 10-week class on instant in, implementing societal changes from the perspective of healing post-traumatic slave syndrome. So the group part of it is important. The active participation part of it is important. Being able to have these sacred circles where people can heal together is important. And so it just validates a lot of the things that I do, including being a mobile acupuncturist, because I treat communities as a mobile acupuncturist. I get to treat people that your normal acupuncturist will never see. And that is simply because I'm right there. And you can't continue to tell me no every single week. <laughs> Your wife is going to nag you to death until you do it. The mom is going to get curious enough until she does it. The kid is going to get curious enough until they do it. The friend is going to come over one Tuesday night at six, and she's going to be tired of being told that you're interrupting her acupuncture treatment. And so she's going to show up to participate. So I get to get to the community aspect of, 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 of folks that most other acupuncturists don't because we're in that constant sterile clinical setting, which is terrifying to most African-Americans. We have iatrophobia. We're terrified of doctors. We're terrified of medicine. And as one of my friends used to say, it's not paranoia if it's true, <laughs> right? So we've had this history of medical abuse in this country and taking that clinical sterility fear, I don't know what's about to happen to me thing, to leveling the playing field with your, your healthcare practitioner who is now a guest in your home and has to obey your rules and that you can throw out really takes away a lot of the, the fear that, that has um, been developed over hundreds of years. I imagine it changes the power dynamic considerably. Significantly. As, you're, as a guest, and that in and of itself can change the trauma response when you feel safer. And yep, significantly. And it sounds Thank like, you. you know, the social and economic conditions that injure us, we can also create social and economic conditions that help us heal. And I think that's really in that legacy of the Black Panther community. In a way, they were trying to create uh, a medicine of true caring for people's health, as opposed to just putting people on more drugs. 
that's what they did. And they did that by, um, by training the, the everyday Dre, right? Like they got somebody who learned how to do this finger stick for the sickle cell anemia test. They got somebody who could do the blood pressure test. And it was Miss So-and-so from the library. They got somebody who could help you with your diabetes. And it was Mr. Such-and-such from down the street, right? They got people from the community who could have this active take part, do it yourself kind of mentality of taking care of health. Because up until that point, nobody was taking care of us. And that continues today with, you know, with the history of medical apartheid and medical bias. We are afraid that no one is going to take care of us or take care of us well. Um, you know, there was some recent study, I forgot what publication it was in, where medical professionals still believe crazy weird things like Black people have thicker skin, or we feel less pain, or, you know, pick a bias. Like, there's there's some really weird things that happens in medical training that doesn't make any sense. And it comes from this long line of medical apartheid that started with the lack of autonomy that people who were who were placed in this situation of slavery had to suffer with. And then you, you throw in the Flexner report where Flexner was just like, oh, and we're just going to close all these black schools because I don't agree. And we don't, I don't really think that black people belong in medicine. Like at best they could be a glorified nurse. Like that's what he said. And so this, this continued, like this was in 1910 and that has continued up until this day. And we're just beginning to recognize some of those barriers that have been placed up in medicine and why they need to be broken down. So when you look at this long history of medical abuse, when you look at uh, works like Harriet Washington's Medical Apartheid, and you understand what has happened to people of color in this country, you begin to understand our fear. You understand why we have such a do-it-yourself attitude, why we don't like going to doctors, why we don't like participating in medicine. Um, you understand the whys of so many things. And then if you compound that with practitioners who don't have racial literacy or racial competency, then you, you have a situation where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, even if you have the best of intentions. If you don't know any better and then you do harm to a person who has been historically traumatized, they're not coming back and they're not going to get to their family members. So changing the power dynamic and being a person of African descent inside of people's homes, it allows me to get a better treatment and it allows me to get to people who would normally fall through the cracks. It's an incredible gift to your community. Thank you. I love what I do. It's awesome. I can tell, and you're passionate about it and eloquent. Um, and it seems like well aware of the structural violence in the system. Do you see solutions coming forward? It seems like the racial dialogue and the, you know, sort of overwhelm in America's psyche right now, it seems like ripe times for change. What do you see on the horizon moving in a positive direction, if you see such a thing, or do you do you see the, the sort of structural violence just continuing? So I have hope, right? Um, this is not the first time we've been here as a country. We've had this conversation repeatedly. Most recently in the 1960s, uh, most currently due to um, the murder of George Floyd um, as he cried out for his mom, Right. We have had this conversation in medical circles of trying to understand what's wrong with Black people. How come their health is so bad? And that's the wrong question. We are finally getting to the question of 
what are we doing to them that makes this health disparities gap a thing? And the health disparities gap is really kind of an embarrassment to the United States because we are the richest country in the world. We spend more money than anybody else on, on medicine. And, you know, we, we generally have really poor outcomes overall in medicine in the United States, but it is glaring in black and brown communities. It is glaring when you start talking about um, the health disparities around birth and labor and delivery and uh, survival of, of infants through their, their first year of life. Like there are so many things that are so glaring and so big and so bad. It's kind of like, you know, you really should do something about the boil in the middle of your forehead. So I have hope, but being that um, the United States has been really comfortable with, uh, with its behavior and with its history and with its inequality um, and with its social structure for so long, like I have hope, but I'm not gonna be foolish enough to hold my breath either. So I am attempting to be the change that I wish to see in the world. And that is why there is a blackacupuncturist.com. That is why I'm developing things like the Get Sharp Ear Seat program. That is why I post things like the review of findings, why Black people need to have access to acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine. And that is why I refrain from saying, this is the holy grail of treatments whenever you come across a Black person, right? I just give generalities and remind folks to treat the person that you see and make sure that you take off the rose-colored glasses and really treat the person that you see. This is why I talk about works like medical apartheid and post-traumatic slave syndrome and broken ladder and polyvagal theory and the body keeps the score and on and on and on and on. So that, um, very much like Horton Hears the Who, maybe if we scream loud enough, someone will know that there is somebody on the dust back, that we really are here. And, you know, it's not a dust back, like Africa is the largest landmass. <laughs> we can fit all kinds of stuff in Africa. We are definitely not a dust back. Um, and our history is not a dust back. And our history does not begin with the capture and kidnap and subsequent torture and enslavement of people who came from the West African coast. So where do I see it going? I see schools, some I think maybe a little bit more than others, having a knee-jerk reaction of needing to do something to, to be considered uh, capable of providing their students with racial literacy. Um, we have had diversity and inclusion courses for, for forever, and it hasn't gotten any better. We are now having the conversations about medical bias um, and why these things are inappropriate. We are now having the conversations of the effect of racism and how it breaks down the body over time. We are now having the conversations of the effects of racism on telomere link. We are having all of these conversations. And so this isn't just a conversation about racism. This is also a conversation about economic injustice that is also happening. We, we also have to have the conversation of equity in, in, uh, in, in the United States. And so I have my fingers crossed, but I'm also aware that the, you know, the richest 1% has gotten dynamically richer over the course of the last few months. And maybe, maybe things really aren't going to change. You know, it just might be the current hurrah. My kid might be dealing with this is, is my fear, right? My, my kid is nine and in 30 or 40 years, we might be having this conversation again because we haven't had it enough. So what I'm hoping is going to happen is that, uh, 
people who are white will understand that racism is as embedded in our culture as the air that we breathe. And nobody wants to be associated with the, the, the Ku Klux Klan and the funny hats and the white sheets and the burning crosses. But that isn't the end all that be all that comes along with racism. That isn't the end all that be all that comes along with economic disparities. We really have to dismantle the whole system and it takes um, really being able to be open and honest about the differential diagnosis of the United States and the cancer that's been living in it for a really long time. You can't act like it's not happening. And it is the responsibility of all of its citizens um, particularly the ones that have kind of been in the deficiency zone of some of these things to step up and to do that. So is that going to happen? I don't know, honey. I hope so. But I think it's a lot of, um, I, I think it's a lot of potential lip service. Like I'm happy about the monuments and I'm happy about the, the pancake syrup and I'm happy about the rice and I'm happy about the disbanded, police departments and I'm happy about a lot of things and I continue to look at how um, how some things are not changing, right? How how we are still waiting for murderers to to go to jail. Because that's what they are. They're murderers. And that that is that is like step number one. We 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 have got to be willing as a country to put people in jail for murdering folks, particularly if you have been entrusted with protecting and serving the community legitimate and and sorrowful in a way that action hasn't been taken there and some of the structural inequities like i think of in some of the poorest communities in denver a lot of them are in food deserts so like even the foundation of of health is hard to come by and good food and a lot of them are in the most polluted parts of the city where there are downstreams of you know industrial processes so you see high incidence of asthma and young children of color in those communities. And so, so the dilapidation of the of the structures, the dilapidations of the buildings, the, the lack of adequate clean air and water, the cell phone towers, the energy towers, the, the, the food deserts, you know, the fact that there are laws put into place that you can't grow food in your front yard on top of everything else because we have all these ordinances, uh, the redlining, which is what creates these kinds of situations where the taxes are never going into those communities, but the money is always coming out, the lack of uh, financial literacy that happens, the 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 blocking of, of individuals from being able to go to school the the school to prison pipelines like it is a structural thing there are so many things in place that keeps the system purposely skewed and broken there are a lot of them like you know i was rereading an article about just sleep like just sleep we don't get enough sleep right we can't sleep because we're stressed we like the most fundamental thing of all, like water, food, and sleep, is something that is frequently denied to the poorest residents of the United States, which are frequently black and brown people. So it is a system, and I want that part of the system dismantled. I want, you know, people laugh. It's like, yeah, I'll still take that 40 acres in the move, but me go move somewhere where I can have clean land and clean water and no pollution and no lead and no water pollution, like just no, like I want the nose and I want to be able to go somewhere where I know every time I walk down the street, there isn't going to be someone who, who clutches their bag or locks the doors or starts yelling at me for no reason or calls the cops on me because I'm in Starbucks or, you know, the 10,000 reasons that 
African-Americans have had the cops called on them. Like in every one of those incidences, like it's good that they're out there, but each and every one of those is a trauma to the, to those of us who are reading it, even if we didn't experience it. Right. And it's nice that we don't have to gaslight ourselves about that anymore, but that's the part that also has to go with it. It isn't just the food deserts, like it's the psychological traumas that go along with it that won't even let you sleep at night. The psychological traumas that changes your kidney function for 24 hours. Like it, the, one of the first studies I read about kidney function didn't even have anything to do with black people. It was a study they did on LGBTQ community and the idea that they might have been discriminated against because they were part of the LGBTQ community changed their kidney function. I'm like, are you serious? Like this is just common knowledge. Like you can just go on PubMed and look this up and we don't do anything about it in this country. Are you for real? So we got a long way to go. And that's, you know, that's why I say I'm hopeful, but I'm not going to hold my breath either. I have to do what I can. And that's, and that's this, that's getting the story out. That's getting the news out. That's getting the medicine out. Beautiful. You know, I, I see, I see changes in the next generation. I see changes in the sort of college aged affluent next generation that they're progressive in a way that the previous generations weren't on all issues of equity though it remains to see if that that consciousness gets translated into action as generational wealth is moved between generations and really gets reinvested in equity and i think that that's a really big question and you know i have a more challenging question for you um and if it's an unfair question, you can punt it back to me and say, hey, it's not my job to, you know, educate your half Asian personhood. Um, but how do you communicate with white people who grew up with poverty and trauma, but don't understand that they're still privileged, even though they grew up with poverty and trauma? And like, we obviously don't want to marginalize their suffering, but ideally these people would be allies in, in, creating a better world where it seems like sometimes uh, the sort of poor marginalized and traumatized are sort of set at odds against each other. Like how do we create an inclusive movement? And right now I see a lot of like sort of well-educated, socially progressive white people basically calling out the traumatized, hurting, you know, unemployed guy with the MAGA hat who is, you know, who is obviously spouting ignorant things, but is as much a victim of structural violence, but maybe not at the same level as, as uh, people of color. Like how, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we cross the bridge there? So I think that the first thing to understand is that we have to understand like the Gini coefficient in the United States. We have to understand that structural inequality hurts everybody, just point blank and period, right? It does hurt everybody. It hurts people of color in completely and totally different ways and significantly more than it does people who grew up white and poor. Because one of the things that you've never had to deal with, whether you grew up white or poor or in violent communities, if you did not grow up with um, melanin, in your skin, then you did not grow up with the extra terror and the, the, the extra punt and the extra boot on your neck or knee on your neck, so to speak, that comes along with being black in the United States. And so it's not to take away 
what ha- what has happened to white individuals. It's not to say that you haven't suffered. It, me- it just means that you haven't suffered this. And so I like to um, ha- turn this conversation to something that people can understand a little bit better because racism creates a, kn- a knee-jerk reaction kind of thing, um, especially talking to men, right? So men do not think about going out and um, if their outfit could cause them to be accosted, right? That's not something you think about. You don't think about, is your car close enough for you not to be followed? Can you get to your car safely if you leave an event late? You don't think about, are there safe people around you to make sure that you need to get home because you're a woman? You don't think about catcalling. You don't think about someone potentially dragging you down an alley and trying to rape you. These conversations never happen for you because they're not a part of your reality. So It's a little easier to understand if you think about it in those terms. These are things you have simply never had to think about. It doesn't stop them from being true. It just means that these things haven't affected you. So as an African-American, you have never had to worry about the police. You've never looked at your child and seen Tamir Rice or Trayvon Martin. And I have, like, I brought my kid a hoodie one day and like, I had like a a panic attack for a day because he went outside and it had a little pocket in the front and he was pulling things out of his pocket and he had his hoodie up and I'm like, (gasps) you've never had that experience. You've never had to worry about, did you not get a job because you're black? You've never had to worry about, did you not get a loan because you're black? You've never had to worry about, did you not get accepted into a college or an institution or a thing because you're black? You've never been fired because you're black. You've never had additional hardships on top of just being poor, just because you're black. And people don't want to think about the fact that, well, I'm I'm disadvantaged of, you know, I, I've had disadvantages in my life. Like I'm not knocking the the next person uh, because I've, I've had hardships too. I'm definitely not a racist. And it's like racism doesn't have to be, like I said, the nooses. It doesn't have to be the really horrible, big, bad, ugly things. But just that question, just the question is like, well, I've had it hard too. How come it's not about me too? It's like just the fact that we have to have that question shows, unfortunately, your racism. It shows your lack of understanding of what melanated individuals have had to suffer. In terms of traditional Chinese medicine, we know about Jing. We understand how things can be passed on from the parent to the child, and we understand how they can be passed on from the parent to the child for generations. You did not have that genetic inheritance to set you up for additional hardships just because you have melanin in your skin. There are a lot of things that go along with it. And sometimes we have to take the conversation outside of ourselves to be able to understand why this conversation is important, right? And if anything, like I tell folks, like if you really want to be mad at somebody, we need to be mad at the super rich. Like whoever it is, it's in the top one and 10% of the economic um, bracket. Why do you have this much money? Why? Why do you need this much money? Why is this money not being absconded with for social programs? Why have there not been reparations so that individuals who are African descendants of slaves can at least get an, an equal footing where we haven't had one? We don't get to have generational wealth. As poor as white people might be, black people are still poor. In, com- in comparison, we are still poorer. And it's on purpose. It is done to us. So there is a whole historical conversation that really needs to happen. There's an entire educational piece that needs to happen. It needs to be a part of our public education system. Like, 
you know, like we have to go back and get revaccinated. I think people need to go back and be reeducated. I think these are conversations that need to happen en masse so that we can stop having this conversation because it's, you know, when you, when you have a trauma, it's not fair uh, to, to, you know, to walk up to somebody who's like, you know, I, I've, I've lost a kidney or I've lost a leg. It's like, well, you know, I got punched in the face once. What does that have to do with anything? Like, that's not, we're talking about the fact that I had my leg amputated and there's nothing to do with the fact that you got punched in the face once, right? Or twice for that matter. So there's an entire educational piece that needs to happen for white America so that we can stop having the conversation because the conversations are not equal. Do you feel like that education is happening? Like, do you feel like that perspective is being shared and is be, like, I can imagine that being very confronting to, like, I don't find that confronting. I feel like I'm learning here, but I feel like a lot of people, when you bring them that information, they find it confronting. So white fragility, cognitive dissonance, these are buzzwords. We've heard these things before. I understand that for some folks, this is a hard conversation. It's probably very much like the the Me Too conversation that had to have where, you know, if no means no, and that doesn't, you know, I don't care how short the skirt is or how low the cleavage, you don't get to touch, right? You get, you might get to look, but you don't even necessarily get to talk about it. And so there's this re-educational piece that has to happen and it doesn't make you a villain. And I think that was really where a lot of the hang up happens for, for the everyday white person. It's like, well, I'm not a bad person. No one's calling you a bad person. It just means that you might have some bad personal habits. We can take it to dentistry, right? Not everybody knows how to floss their teeth. And so you get cavities and you want to know, it's like, well, I brush my teeth. Well, maybe you're not brushing them after every meal and maybe you're not flossing them after every meal. I'm not calling you dirty. I'm just saying that maybe you don't know how to do these things in a way to preserve your teeth. And I suggest that white people have to learn how to have better social hygiene so that we can live better together. And that can't happen if you don't learn how to do that. And the evidence speaks for itself. If you go to the dentist and you have a bunch of cavities and you have to keep getting root canals and your teeth falling out, the reality of it is is that you're not taking care of your teeth. We have a racism issue in this country. It creates racial battle fatigue in this country and it creates a racial health disparities gap in this country. And the evidence simply is there and it speaks for itself. And you don't have to like that evidence, but it doesn't change that evidence. Luke, I'd I'd love to weigh in. Your voice has been very silent tonight. I've just been listening. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, I, I appreciate all the things that, that you're saying and, um, Marco, as as you are, so I'm a, a multi ethnic person as well, and and uh, grew up in a community of color in Southern Colorado, and you know I see many of these same issues happening to a lesser degree in the Hispanic community where I grew up in Southern Colorado, and uh, and there are uh, similar but different issues that confront the Asian community, and uh, I, I think that the rising tide of awareness of these issues can only be a good thing. And uh, I have optimism that um, looking at in the, in the history of the United States, the, the foundational documents of the, the government itself are colorblind, or at least they are now. I think maybe when the, when the United States was founded, it was not. But we've gone through yeah. a, a lot of reform and the current social climate that we find ourselves in is the latest round of reform. And 
I believe those processes will continue, or I hope that they will continue until we reach a state where there is at least an equality of opportunity. And I know we're not there yet. It's very clear that we're not in a state where we have equality of opportunity in the United States. And, and that is a worthy goal. And, uh, you know, Tanisha, you've, you have a tremendous amount of passion and, uh, and knowledge about what's required to, to reach that state. I do believe it will be a multi-generational project. It's not something that will happen overnight and it probably won't happen even in a decade. It may take, you know, two or three or five more decades. I mean, uh, the sooner the better, obviously, but, um, you know, I, I know we all need to, to work in the best that we can, in the best way that we can towards these goals. Um, it will take time. Well, I think that's why we're acupuncturists. We're engaged in the process of healing, both of ourselves and of our communities. And I mm -hmm. think that healing, it's not only individual, but it's also collective. It's the idea, can we create a better world that fosters more health? And while there's rampant inequality and racism, it's actually harder to create communities of true health on multiple levels. And it's, it's hard to be on both ends, but it's particularly to be hard to be on the discriminated end. But I, but I think of just um, say the growth in um, gay rights in my lifetime from when I was a child to now as an adult, the, the change in the dialogue, the, the change in the dialogue around race, the change in the uh, dialogue around consent, all these things are evolving. But I don't think that they, they're all still, they're still, as Tanisha says, deep roots in trauma that need to be healed. Absolutely. That's partially our, our work for, for us and for future generations. You know, one of my questions is, is within trauma, there is a propensity to continue the trauma. When people are hurt or wounded, they tend to lash out and hurt more people. It's a, a frequent uh, hallmark of trauma, um, especially if they don't have the resources to heal. And one of the things that, that I see, which is relatively minor, but it sounds loud, is sort of the call out the Karen culture. You know, these sort of, sort of call out the clueless white person. And so I think that the calling out of racism is absolutely un mitigatedly vital because yeah. it is the it is the it is the silence and it is the compliance that allows the violence to continue on our lives as melanated individuals i you know i don't have sympathy for individuals who have to deal with that instant karma of you have done a horrible thing and you really need to think about what you've done because this one person is affecting potentially millions of individuals with their careless actions. And I think that it, I think you should be uncomfortable with racism in this exact same way that you'd be very uncomfortable with uh, someone exhibiting pedophilia in the middle of the street. Nobody would allow you to touch a child in the middle of the street in that ways. And no one should feel comfortable being racist um, ever. We, and I, and I think that, people being forced to be horribly uncomfortable with very bad choices is going to be one of the fastest ways to make it stop. 
um, does that mean that some people are potentially going to suffer some some discomfort and some economic blowback? Yes, that does mean that. Um, you also have to lance a boil, right? You got to crack an egg to make an omelet. Things things have to shift because the cost is my life. The cost is my son's life. The cost is another George Floyd. The cost is another Breonna Taylor. The cost of allowing uh, people to be comfortable with their racist behavior is that there is always this explosion of negativity and people go, oh gosh, maybe, no, there is no maybe. There is, this is not acceptable in the exact same way that pedophilia is not acceptable. And I cannot uh, condone uh, any wavering on that. And I, and I realize that may seem very unfair to people, but uh, you know, I just, it's my life. It's our lives that, that are at stake um, with being allowed to waver with um, socially unacceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, I think of, uh, you know, a young college educated uh client of mine who's very progressive, gone to the protests, Black Lives Matter, young white lady, but she's actively calling out her mom saying that her mom is racist and that her silence is violence. Yes. You know, and sort of actively shaming her mom for, you know, not being aware of her white privilege. And it seems like that that it is bringing the conversation to a t- the table in a new way, but I don't know if it's necessarily opening up her mother to new perspective or perspectives that are healing or creating, um, like using sort of critical social justice as like a sort of crowbar against her mom. Is it creating the change we want to see? And I'm not saying that that you know silence is a correct course of action. I'm just saying that is there, are there perspectives that get us there faster? Are there techniques and strategies that create a groundswell of, of shift in our culture around the conversation around race and privilege? So we, we've had nice conversations around race and privilege and we're still here. We've had nice conversations about the concentration camps that Latina people are being shoved into. And guess what? They're still in those concentration camps, packed into tiny little spaces that can be smelled at a distance where children are being separated from their parents. We have nice conversations in this country all the time. And what that does is it allows nice people to, uh, to, to continue to think that they're nice and that they don't have to confront the unnice things about life. And again, I'm, 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 gonna, I, I, I'm gonna reiterate that this is not a not necessarily a place for nice because as a parent, I don't know if either one of you are parents. I'm a parent. Uh, You're a parent. So daughter. you have a two-year-old. If someone came up. 23. And, I'm sorry? 23-year-old daughter. 23. But imagine when your 23-year-old was five or nine and somebody wanted to come up and touch them in an inappropriate place. Do you have a nice conversation? No. How, how long do you stay nice? Exactly. How, like, how you see how like your face is like, no, I can't, I can't even, I can't even entertain this conversation, but that's what we need to be 
with racism because allowing it means that you then have to go home. It's like, well, you know, the nice man didn't really mean to do what he did. And, you know, in the future, this is how we're going to handle it. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And in the terms of racism, as I said, a 30 minute trip to Ikea landed me with three different incidences. How many times do, do, do we allow the nice way to be the pathway? And I'm not saying that I'm condoning blowing up police stations. That's not what I'm saying. I am just saying that as a female, if you come to me and you touch me in an inappropriate manner, please expect my response to be very unnice. And as a Black person, if you put me in a situation where you have just jeopardized my heart health, my kidney health, my ability to see my grandchildren being born, my capacity to go home and be nice to my nine-year-old. Don't expect me to be nice. I don't have to be nice about you jeopardizing my life. And this tone policing thing is a part of racism. This, well, we should just be nice about it. No, we don't need to be nice about it because this is a very nasty, very ugly thing. And we have been nice about it for hundreds of years. And the niceness is how we have ended up in this conversation. And I, I, I think that people need to be very uncomfortable. I think that people should want to fast track their social hygiene in the same way that you'll want to fast track a trip to the dentist because your tooth is killing you. The same way that you want to fast track a trip to, uh, to, the, to the emergency room because you have a bladder infection. Like we have a raging infection in this country and you're not gonna cure it by acting like it's not happening and being nice about it. Like it's it's time for the Dao Huang. It's time for the pillows. Like it's time for the bitter medicine because it's not working any other way. Um, and the the cost of trying to be gentle with it is that we have African Americans who die 10 to 30 years younger than their white counterparts from the top 10, 15 diseases every day. That's the cost of nice. And I don't know how you can actually ask somebody to continue to be okay with that for another decade or two or three or generation or five, right? The, the actions that we took when we're talking about uh, Nazi Germany and their behavior in the Holocaust was swift and immediate. And that was it. We're not having that conversation anymore. And the Hasidic community is very clear about we're not having this conversation anymore. And they will come down on you like the wrath of God if they feel like you're attempting to look much less move in that direction. So is it uncomfortable for people? Yes, it is. It is very uncomfortable very much like lancing a boil, very much like a surgery, very much like a tooth extraction. There are definitely some uncomfortable things about it, but the continued cost of um, not being decisive in our action is way higher and way uglier. So should white people have nicer conversations amongst themselves? Go ahead. You have nicer conversations at home if you feel like get your point across, if you have better analogies, if you have better tools, do I think things like take part and, um, oh gosh, what is the other one? There's, there's this really wonderful group, uh, Surge, I think. 
my brain is blanking out. It doesn't do that on me all the time. But there's, I think it's surge or something where people are having these conversations in, in safe groups for white people to begin to understand. Do I know that mistakes are still going to be made? Because this is unlearning um, a lifetime of bad habits. Absolutely. I do understand that. But again, in the same ways that as a parent, you will not let somebody touch your child inappropriately, continuing to ask African-American, continuing to ask the Latina community to be nice about the detention centers, continuing to ask the Asian community to be nice about the, the, the xenophobia that, is, that has come about because of COVID-19, asking the Islamic community to be nice about the xenophobia that came about because of 9-11. You can't ask people to be nice when their lives are on the line. That makes sense. I feel aligned with your perspective. There's, there's, there's still the, the question for me. It's, it's not necessarily about being nice or not nice. It's more a question about being effective. You know, sometimes like, for example, I have a patient who has uh, um, uh, an addiction or a or a health habit that is deleterious to their health. And I'm clear that this is problematic and is causing them a lot of pain and suffering. That I'm clear what the cancer is, so to speak. But I guess the question for me is, what is the efficacious communication? And right now I see, it seems like outrage is bringing the conversation to the forefront. And I actually think that is healthy, I think we're angry because we care about a better world. We see a better world is, is just. Um, but I also, I have, maybe it's just my own personal work on my own. I don't feel fragile in any way. I actually feel quite anti-fragile and willing to take multiple perspectives, but more so I, I see, I see the, the country fracturing and becoming more sort of set, uh, um, uh, set in sort of diametric opposition. You know, I see yin and yang separating to a certain extent to use a Chinese medicine theory. And, and I'm curious if there's harmonization practices here, you know? So this is, this is the work. This is where I, I tell people like, my work stops at a certain place. I can tell you that this is a problem. You're a diabetic. You can't eat candy. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that you can't have sugar and you can't have candy. I can tell you all the reasons why this is not working for you. I can tell you how many ways this is hurting you. But when you go home, I have no control over whether or not you choose to have the cake or you choose to have the candy or you choose to do the whatever it is that is detrimental to your health. There comes a point where I can no longer be responsible, right? I I can only do what I can do as a practitioner. I can give you the herbs. I can give you the dietary advice. I can give you the medicine. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Do I see the fact that this country is absolutely facing a separation of yin and yang and that there's a particular implosion or explosion just kind of sitting there on the tipping point? Yes. I see that. Um, do I want this country to tear itself apart? Absolutely not. I do not want this country to tear itself apart. 
but I'm also not willing to ask anybody else to continue to stretch their neck across the guillotine for it either. So there comes a point where personal responsibility has to kick in. And I can't do that for white America. I can't do that for rich America. I cannot do anything more than what I'm doing. And I don't have the answers to that. I simply have the information and you will do what you will with it, not you personally, um, but you'll do what you will with it. And um, also like being a parent, you know, you can ask your kid to clean your room over and over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually what you have to do is you have to put up punishment. It's like, okay, well, you don't get the game station controllers back until you clean the room because this is now the punishment, right? And then if you continue with your behavior, I'll take the whole game station out of the house. I'm fine with that, right? <laughs> um, and you have to make the choice sooner or later. Um, because that to me is infinitely better than yelling at you, screaming at you, trying to do corporal punishment. I'll just take the game controller away because I know that that is where you, you will finally understand. You will finally, finally listen. What does that look like for this country? I don't have an answer. I only have the information and I'm generally a really good storyteller and getting people to, to listen and to want to hear the story and to want to walk away and do something with the information, but if you choose not to, I can't do anything about that. So what is the answer? I don't have one. I, I only have the story to tell and you can take the lesson from the parable or you can eat the cake. So Marco, I'm, I'm really curious. You're a, a very effective communicator and a wonderful teacher. And um, it seems like your question, maybe I'm curious if behind your question, there might be some ideas that you have about how to effectively communicate. Yeah. I mean, I think Tanisha's example is a one I see in my practice. I see people who, you know, have syndrome X, who have spleen deficiency and continue to eat a lot of sugar. And uh, uh, a story I often tell them is that, you know, sugar represents the sweetness of life, you know, represents being nurtured. And, but that sweetness and nurturance in too high an amount actually causes disease and dampness and imbalance, sort of like the spoiled child. And is the sweetness that you're really looking from life, um, uh, is it, are you looking for that cookie, that piece of cake? Are you looking for the sweetness of being seen, the sweetness of being heard, the sweetness of telling your truth? And so I think there's a lot of different sweetnesses that we can be nourished by. And I, I might be going beyond my, my bounds as an acupuncturist in that conversation. I may be stepping more into the realm of a therapist, a counselor, or a guide in that conversation. But I think that in, I'm not asking Tanisha to take responsibility for the world's ills or the imbalance or the, um, in the separation between the yin and yang in our culture, the culture wars we see, that's, that's not her responsibility. Sure. But I'm seeking to learn of how to be a more uh, effective, like I'm in a position of immense privilege and of, uh, of people come to me seeking, seeking um, knowledge and answers. 
around their health and around their well-being, around their relationships with their family, around their relationships with their business and their community. And I see how it lands in their bodies. I see how it lands in their hearts and lands in their souls. And so one of my questions is looking at race through the construct of health. It's suddenly, it's, it's illuminating to a, to a deeper disease. Uh, a cultural disease, which I think Tanisha really clearly points out. And I think for both of our audience, how do we be, how do we be, and this is more of a question than I know the answer to, is how do we be effective healers to, to, to rooting out this illness? And I think at first it's to recognize our own biases and prejudices Second, I think it's to, to have conversations and be able to listen. And then third, I think it is to take a stand. But I think there is, uh, there's a lot of nuance there that I'm still missing in the conversation because, you know, I definitely come across patients who are racist, you know, and, you know, even within my, you know, I, like in my own education, I've seen my own Chinese teachers be incredibly racist to some of my colleagues uh, because they're not Chinese. You know, they favor they favor their own people, and I I don't tend to think that like ethnocentrism is ever going to go away. I think it's it's like people are attracted to people who look and sound like them, but I think it is that ethnocentrism is really sort of a it's a it's a form of immaturity in a way. And, and how do we mature from an ethnocentric culture to, you know, a logical centered culture and then mature from a logical centered culture to a culture that's world centric and then mature into a culture that really sees a more developmental perspective that sees us as human beings, but within the context of all the other structures. And, and then how do we heal? And I, I don't have the answers to that so much as, as the conversation, I wanna be a part of it. Like I care and I care about a more just world. And I know my own parents faced tremendous racism of being an interracial couple in rural Louisiana when I was a child, but they don't talk about it. You know, the, the, it's not part of their conversation. I asked them about racism and they're like, we survived and we got to where we are now. And we're proud of that. Um, but I think with my daughter, who's 23 and really well-educated, it's a very active conversation. And she's, she's inflamed and angry and wants to see a different world. And I wanna support her in creating that different world. And I don't know that I always have the tools. And so for me, this conversation is part of seeking seeking to be part of a, a bigger conversation. And also you, I think there's a using my resources actively to create, create both a larger platform for that conversation to happen, uh, to educate my fellow practitioners and to provide resources for acupuncturists of color to serve their own communities. And it, it, seems, it seems like the least I could do. Definitely appreciate you utilizing your platform and your privilege to have these conversations. This is a part of how it happens, simply having the conversation. Um, 
is just the biggest thing. Like we have to have this conversation and you got to be okay with the answers that come up and know that my answers aren't the answers. There are definitely people who disagree with my feelings on things. There are definitely people who don't think that there is a racism issue, which I can't even begin to fathom and understand. Um, and there are people who think that there is a way to, to kind of kumbaya and we can all get along and figure it out down the road. And there are people who are tired of trying to kumbaya it and figure it out down the road. But regardless, the ultimate answer is just to have the dialogue because the gaslighting that has happened up until this point, that that's not happening conversation that has happened up until this point is the most detrimental thing of all. And so um, very much like in any relationship, if the couple stops talking, the relationship will die. There is no fixing it if they're not talking to each other about the problems. They're just going to be mad and they're just going to be angry. And you got to be okay with the mad and you got to be okay with the angry and you got to be okay with the sad and you got to be okay with the disagreements and you got to be okay with all the things that come up with it. And you got to be able to take some of that on, on the chin, you know, um, particularly in a relationship where there's been some infidelity. Right. How do we move to uh, a more mm, person centered consciousness? I don't know. You know, there are um, many, many different spiritual walks of life because this is now a spiritual conversation that we're having. How do we learn to see the God within each creature that walks the planet? That isn't necessarily something that's taught in all spiritual walks of life. And that isn't necessarily a conversation that everybody wants to have because everybody feels that spirituality is incredibly personal and it gets to be that way too. But if your spirituality is not helping you see every living thing as a right to having its life so long as it's not impeding on yours, I don't know how you get there. So again, for me, my battle cry has simply been that we are here, this is a thing and we need to get it out into the open. We need to lance the boil. But once you have this collection of pus and what are we gonna do about the care that happens afterwards? I don't have all the answers to those things because I am an acupuncturist. I put needles in people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Just, just the work that I've done up until this point when I tell people like, I, yeah, I took a 10 week class with Dr. Joy DeGruy who is you know, talking to social workers and counselors and therapists as an acupuncturist. And it was definitely something that was over my head and I was most certainly swimming hard to, to, to maintain and understand uh, because it's not my field. Right. Maybe I'll go back and I'll get a, a degree in social work. Maybe I'll go back and I'll get degrees in spirituality and theology and all of these different things to be able to answer the question. I'm simply looking at it from a standpoint of an acupuncturist. And I've noticed over my 11 years of practice how hard it is to treat people of color and to get them to be better. And all the things that I've had to do to be able to give um, African descendants of slaves and other melanated individuals a leg up in the healing department and understanding the 10,000 conundrums that come with dealing with people who are melanated and how to get them to just oftentimes not even getting better, but just sometimes just dog paddling and, and holding water and not continuing to backslide into oblivion. So I don't have those answers. And I can tell you that the work that I've done up until this point is all that I can manage. I don't, I am going to put the ball back in your court. Like that is not the thing that I'm trying to come up with. I am simply trying to come up with, we have got 
to look at this conversation. We've got to have this conversation and then begin to put things into place. And for me, um, until people who are white or white presenting um, begin to unpack their cancers, it can't get any better. And how do you make that any easier? I have no idea. None whatsoever. It just has to happen. And if you refuse, then there will continue to be a separation of yin and yang. And this country will slowly destroy itself as it has definitely been trying to do kind of all year. Um, and and, and <laughs> 2020 has been a rough year for the United States. Um, it's been a rough year for most of the world. It's been a rough year for the most of the world, but the United States is definitely struggling with itself. Um, it's a dumpster fire, really, with our current president. Man, please don't get me started on the 45. We, we won't go there today. You know, I, I want to actually focus back in sort of your, uh, your wheelhouse. And I want to hear if you were to give advice out to uh, young Black acupuncturists, maybe people starting in the field or people even considering going to acupuncture school, what would you want to tell them? Don't quit. First thing I would tell them is don't quit. Um, I um, have been in contact with a lot of Black acupuncturists, especially, you know, in general, but especially over the last few months. And one of the things that is uh, that comes up over and over again are the racist experiences that they have um, as students that are unsupported in these predominantly white and/or Asian spaces. And so the first thing I would say is don't quit. And that seems like a horrible thing to ask somebody to continue to put yourself in a situation of racial battle fatigue so that you can then be an instrument of healing within our own communities. Um, it's worth it would be the next thing that I would say. It is worth it to get this tool under your belt so that you can continue to be an implement of change in our communities. Um, and the next would definitely be think outside of the box. I have a really strange practice by <laughs> 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 most people's standpoints. <laughs> I remember my practice is almost almost four years old. It'll be four years old um, next month. I think July 23rd was the first time I stepped out as everyone's place. Um, and I did it in a really strange way that most people kept telling me, you can't do it like that. And it's like, yes, I can. So definitely thinking outside of the box and knowing that you don't have to exist within the paradigms that are being presented to you. So don't quit. It's worth it. And think outside of the box once you get here. And hopefully, particularly for many of the students who are on the cusp of graduation, uh, many of them who will be featured this Sunday on our uh, AccuPoints Meet and Greet Black Acupuncturists. We're going to have five uh, acupuncture students there. Um, I'm hoping that there will be better systems in place to, to catch fresh graduates, to give them mentorship and to help them to not feel like they're, they're practicing in social, social isolation. Um, and what is unfortunately an inherently racist system, even acupuncture absolutely is fraught with racism, right? So don't quit. It's totally worth it. And think outside of the box are, are the things that I would tell people. And um, reach out to your, 
reach out to your institutions and arm yourself with um, the knowledge of understanding how you can be a cog in the wheel that turns towards racial uh, health equity. Fantastic. Tanisha, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to educate and inspire us tonight. And uh, just, is there any last thing that you'd like to sort of bring to our attention, projects you're working on, places you need support? Um, I think I've told you about all my projects, but I'll sum them up. There is blackacupuncturist.com. By all means, share if you know of um, African-American acupuncturists who are not there, who are in your area, please hit the join me button for them. <laughs> so that we can get them added. We do not have everyone on, uh, on the website. And so that is super important to do to make sure that we have as accurate a directory as possible uh, because there are so few of us. Um, by all means, uh, we would love support through our current GoFundMe and then make sure to look us up in six months um, because if we haven't finished our 501c, our fiscal sponsorship will definitely be in place, hopefully in the next 90 days, not as long as, as six months, as we are um, combing through the articles of incorporation now so that they can be filed um, and continue to support us so that we can continue to offer scholastic opportunities more than anything else uh, to the community as well as to future acupuncturists. Um, other things that I have are a class on uh, the intrepid acupuncturist, which covers um, some of the racial health disparities gaps in terms of COVID-19. We had a lot of town halls in our acupuncture community, and it covered all the herbs and all the points and all the gua sha and all the cupping um, and all the things to look out for and all the signs and symptoms. But one of the things that I didn't see in not a single solitary acupuncture town hall was addressing and understanding the racial health disparities gap and how it is affecting communities of color. So I made that class and I made sure that it was cheap so that people could just go take it. So it is on the Intrepid Acupuncturist and you will see the COVID-19 class there. Please, please feel free to take the class and continue to educate uh, your, ourselves on these kinds of um, these kinds of conversations. Um, the name of my business is Everyone's Place, and there are some great um, documents and different things that I have written that are up both on Everyone's Place as well as BlackAcupuncturist.com. And this is definitely not the last of us. I'm in the process of writing a multitude of classes that go over many of the conversations and topics that we that we covered today. Um, and what we can do about these things, what we can do to treat racial battle fatigue, what we can do to identify racial battle fatigue and post-traumatic slave syndrome, and how we can be better as a community of acupuncturists in being a part of the change that needs to happen in the, uh, the racial health disparities gap. So things are coming. Give me another 30 days, and man, <laughs> will there be a lot more things out and available on this topic. Well, thank you, Tanisha. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Thank you both for having this conversation with me. It's been quite and very lovely. Wonderful. Thank you for being with us tonight. And we'll make sure to send you a link to the episode. Uh, thanks for being a part of the Modern Immortal podcast. Thank you.